Hey guys, want to keep up with WMQ Comics but generally avoid social media because it's a forever burning trash fire? Sign up for the weekly Q newsletter and get all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views emailed directly to your inbox once a week. You'll get links to all our original content, WMQ&A, bonus reading, Joshua Bermont's reviews, our See You Next Wednesday previews. Without the nagging feeling the human race is better off being wiped out by a giant asteroid. Just go to WMQComics.com and fill out the field on the right-hand side with their email address. Do it today. Three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity, you get three as a magic number. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote, and if you just heard a snippet of the Schoolhouse Rock song, Three is a Magic Number, that can only mean two things. One, I learned a new editing trick, and two, it's a Three Amigos episode. Matt, Rob, say hello. What's up, lovers? Hi, everybody! <laughs> Guys, it's Valentine's Day, love is in the air. What better way to celebrate than to listen to three dudes talk about comics? Uh, three happily married dudes. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, uh, as has become practice in these uh, Three Amigos episodes, we've each brought uh, three of our favorite couples in comics to the mic. Uh, Rob, I believe you have requested to go first. I'm going to fire first with this one, and uh, what you call on uh, your fancy Twitters uh, a hot take. I'm going to start and say, you know, when it comes to the X-Men, I'm not a fan of the whole soap opera. You know, the whole the Jeans and the Scots and the Jeans and the Emmas and Kitty and her three Peters and, and all of that. But there's one relationship that like when you kind of uh charged us with this that you know kind of immediately came to mind that was really kind of done around the margins this this is um in the 80s uh how can i say this um something that was kind of forbidden by marvel at the time that was intended by chris claremont Mm -hmm. and the reason that i actually chose this was the way that it was presented was done in such a, a, a classy and memorable way the couple that I'm going with is actually Mystique and Destiny. Now, this was something that, uh, just a little backstory for anybody who may not be familiar. Um, Destiny, I mean, this is a character that, that's that been dead now for 30 years in the, in the books and really has not been resurrected outside of that weird uh, Necrotia story very briefly. Mm. Um, started out as, uh, she's a, uh, an elderly mutant precog. Started out as a terrorist alongside Mystique's Brotherhood, um, the classic story where they planned to uh, assassinate uh, Robert Kelly. Later, she became a government agent alongside Mystique as part of Freedom Force. And in a sort of weird occurrence during the you know, post-Outback uh, era, she was killed by Legion, who was possessed by the Shadow King. Now, being a precog, she was actually able to foresee her death. To foresee actually a lot of things and the effects of her death. Now, to kind of backtrack a little bit with... Uh, the history between Mystique and Destiny. Um, when Claremont created the character, he actually did intend them to be lovers. And to even go further with that, as far back as the days of future past, he had it in mind that he was going to reveal that Destiny was actually Nightcrawler's mother, that Mystique was the father, that not only can she assume the form of another agenda, gender, but can act it, it, powerful enough to actually become that. And it's such a wild concept and everything. And kind of predictably, you know, in Jim Shooter era Marvel, they, they, they shot that down. And um, 
Claremont was still able to throw in little subtle clues that, that there was a little bit something more than a friendship, that they were very close. Now, the story that I decided to like really single out um, was written by Peter David. And oh, I it, know where you're going with this. It stands, oh. is, is one of, you know, one of my very favorite things that he's ever written. Next to the classic, you know, Shrunken Hulk issue <laughs> with the Abomination, you know, where they knowingly rip off real genius. <laughs> That and, and the great Scotty origin story that was the, the, the Star Trek annual that he did. Um, the 1991 X-Factor, I think it was X-Factor Annual 6. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was back in the day when you would do the annuals and it would be like a three or four part thing and, you know, a big story, you know. This was uh, Kings of Pain, right? This was, yes. yes, Kings of Pain. Now, back in the day, what they would do is there would also be two or three backup stories that were just little vignettes, maybe just a little character piece. A little something odd, a spotlight on a character that we don't really get to see much. Now, this was about a year after uh, Destiny died in the book. And uh, the story sets out, first, it's called Tribute the Third. And Peter David basically had done a series of tributes to characters that had passed. I don't remember the other ones. I do know there was one with Rain and Doug. That's the second. Yeah. The first is a Jean Grey after, it's from, it's an X-Factor annual. It's after she's come back from the dead, and she's visiting her own grave, the grave that the phoenix body was buried in, mm-hmm. and she meets a woman who's a Holocaust survivor. Oh, wow. And it becomes about the sort of celebrating life in spite of the death and horror that can happen. Oh, wow. It's good, it, but uh, without, say, without giving you the, the third is also my favorite. The third is the best, yeah. I, I, by, by far. And I, I, again, my, one of my favorite things ever written by... Uh, Peter David. Um, but the story is uh, Destiny has set, you know, very specific instructions after her death and given them the Mystique. And one of them takes the form of uh, Mystique is on a cruise ship. And it's kind of um, following up. They had previously done a vacation on a cruise ship where, uh, you know, Raven is very sour about everything, just very, very joyless, very edgy and everything. And, you know, the cool thing about Destiny is, you know, she just kind of like you know knowingly takes it and just tries to you know lighten her up and play little jokes on her just you know say little things to you know try to lighten her mood and everything and it just never works and you know destiny just keeps cracking at it um and it's actually something that you see uh sort of a preface to the story was actually in marvel fanfare 40 there was a backup story that claremont had done where uh mystique meets storm in a club to basically talk about, you know, Rogue being part of the X-Men and things like that. And there's a brief scene where Destiny meets up there and Mystique actually assumes the form of like a middle-aged man and they do a slow dance at the end, which, you know, I thought was really cool. But back, I, I, and I apologize for my rambling. I've been up since about two in the morning. To, so I'm going to try to be on track here. But anyway, back to the cruise ship. Um, and I'm going to keep trying to throw them off. Yeah. <laughs> so Mystique is carrying around... Um, Irene's uh, cremated remains in an urn, reading all of these instructions. And, you know, the first cryptic one that she opens up, there's uh, a ring in there. And it's the second verse from Obla Di Obla Da. She's like, okay, the Beatles, how appropriate. And it's also the flashback when they were previously on that ship. There's a, you know, really awful lounge act that's playing Obla Di Obla Da. Now, the way that the story is framed is uh, she's going through all these emotions now that Irene is dead and she's just as bitter, if not even more than she was before 
bitter that she's gone, but also bitter that the way that she haunts her. And that, you know, even in death, you know, she's doing all these ridiculous instructions and everything like that. And she just wants to be rid of her. Finally. And the final instruction is that her ashes are to be set out to sea at precisely 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. at a specific point. And the time comes and, you know, Mystique is just having this whole internal monologue about, you know, that's it, Irene. You know, I'm done with you. You will never get in my face again, and you will never you will never get in my hair again. She throws the ashes out at the appointed time, and a gust of wind blows it right in her face and right in her hair. And the only thing that she could do is <laughs> sit there with a stunned face, tears streaming, laughs, and proceeds to run down the deck of the ship, screaming the lyrics to Obladi Oblada, <laughs> ending on, and then the life goes on. And that it's such a perfect way to end that. And I know I'm kind of starting with sort of an odd one, a little bit of an esoteric choice and everything, but just the way that Peter David picked up that baton that, you know, Chris Claremont was kind of forbidden to treat this relationship in that way. And he very respectfully said, well, you know what? No, now that she's gone, I'm still going to do it in a way where it's going to be vague to some readers. Some people are going to see into it for what it really is. And now that it's actually canonically fact, I mean, if you go, to, I, I did mm-hmm. check this. If you go to the marvel.com, if you go to Destiny's profile, it does list that they were lovers. So this is, you know, completely, you know, confirmed now. But, you know, even like completely, you know, without that precedent and everything, just how they deal with love and grief and just that love for somebody that the last thing that you want them to do is to be angry and to grieve and to give them that, that levity, you know, play that kind of joke on them. And it's such a wonderful, you know, bittersweet thing. Now, my question to you guys, actually, I have a pair of questions. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to post the experts. I know, Matt, you had said that you want to, without spoiling, want to deal with what is considered to be the first officially, you know, gay couple in comics. In mainstream modern. Okay, I mean, okay. You know, you, you go into the indie stuff. Mm-hmm. There's, like, the deep indies. It's been a topic yeah. that has been, you know, handled for longer. Now, this is 1991. Um, and you talk about what was permitted and what was not permitted. And this relationship was not permitted by the editorial. This was about a good year before Alpha Flight 106, which is considered to be the landmark in mainstream comics. Uh, that is the issue where North Star's explicitly confirmed to be gay. Do you guys feel like retroactively now, not necessarily this issue, but just this relationship itself is a landmark in mainstream comics, or is this just sort of a little odd trivia bit for, you know, X-Men fans? It's it's tough. Yeah, I mean, without giving too much spoilers for future episodes of the podcast, in an episode we just recorded that will be airing the week after this episode airs, I literally pitched a... I was going to segue into this, actually. Yeah. So go ahead and, and, and spoil <laughs> away. I, I We <laughs> interviewed uh, Sean McGuire, who's writing the upcoming Nightcrawler miniseries and who wrote the Mystique one-shot during X-Men Black. And we asked her about you know writing other members of that clan. <laughs> and I specifically talked about my desire to see a Mystique and Destiny miniseries. Nice. Specifically a Victorian set 
she is Irene Adler at, of the Sherlock Holmes stories, and her and Mystique are basically jerking around Sherlock Holmes for four issues. I love that. I think that would be a that. phenomenal concept. I love Mystique and Destiny as a couple. It'd be very timely, very well received now, I think, in today's audience. Oh, yeah, especially, I mean, and there are other hints of it. There's uh, X-Men True Friends, which mm-hmm. is a Claremont Leonardi three-issue Rachel and Kitty series, mm-hmm. and there they run into Logan, because they get sent back in time to World War II, and he's working with two agents, one named Irene and a man named Raven. Ah. And it was clearly a hint to what you're saying, Rob, about the conception of Nightcrawler in Claremont's original mm-hmm. ideas. I mean, I would love for this to be something that is explored more. Because mm-hmm. I think queerness and the X-Men are is something that has been becoming more a part of that concept in recent years. And they are sort of the first queer couple mm-hmm. in the X-Books. And especially with it... I would like... To, using the word queer in this case is specifically... Because they're not necessarily a quote-unquote gay or homosexual couple. They are... There's a fluidity to the their relationship mm-hmm. where Raven's gender doesn't matter to Destiny. Yeah. And that... There's something that could really, really interesting that could be explored there. It's, and it, it is hard because, yet, you know, obviously queer themes in X-Men have become more pronounced, which is a, a fantastic thing. But I think where, and, and God knows there are other people out there who can explain this better than, than this pasty white dude sitting in front of the <laughs> microphone. But, you know, the fact that so many of these relationships were not textual for decades you know what i mean like if you're uh, you know if you're a queer person you want to see it explicit on the page the ground had to be broken somewhere yeah you know i mean obviously you know claremont has come out and said you know retroactively you know mystique and destiny were a thing you know i intended kitty to be you know mm-hmm. queer maybe with iliana maybe with rachel who knows but you know i so I, I think that's why we get into a little bit of a, a, a gray area because, you know, obviously, yeah, it's amazing that in 1991, you know, these two women had this relationship, mm-hmm. but less so that it had to be kind of danced around and subtly... Skirted around the margins. Subtly, yeah. poignantly hinted at. Mm-hmm. That said, as annual backups go... That's a hell, you know. That's a good one, and a lot better, you know, a lot better than you know Wolverine recounting for the tenth time to Jubilee why the world hates and fears them. And I'll tell you the tragedy of it, actually. And I'm going to go on just a quick little. I always have to diverge here. Just a quick little rant about you know my love for physical media and everything like this. I had to d- dig through the long boxes to read this story. I have the official digital file mm-hmm. of X Factor Annual Six, and it's not on there. Only the Kings of Pain story. It's not included with the reprint. I don't know if um, the essentials includes the annual. It does. Is that yeah? That because that's how I read it. That is included yeah. on there. But as far as like a color reprint or you know an actual legal, <clears throat> you know, fi- like CBR file, it doesn't exist unless you know in the dollar bin or in the essentials, and that's it. And that's a shame. Um. That actually. 
So Mystique and De Destiny segues in uh, pretty good into, uh, I guess, what I'll go with first, uh, since we are talking about the uh, the Dark Home line. Um, so Graydon Creed, and no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. No, uh, I want to talk about Rogue and Gambit because, oh. you know, obviously when you go right to ex-couples, everybody goes to Scott and Gene, Scott and Emma, you know. Uh, we can have that argument back and forth for days, but I don't want to. Uh, you know, the stable couple right now in the X-Men is actually Rogue and Gambit, which is fascinating. If you consider, you know, our generation was, uh, you know, the car the generation that came in with the cartoon with sleazy Gambit forever hitting on, on sassy Southern Rogue. And it was just, you know... Uh, moonlighting with with accents, with ridiculous <laughs> accents, um, and who to thunk after all these years since then that the Swamp Rat and the Southern Belle would be the healthiest couple at the school. I sure felt it. I remember mm -hmm. the first time they went on that date, and I remember everybody like, like X Men Twenty Four. Yeah. No, even before that, I think it was X Men Four. It was the first appearance of Omega Red. Oh yeah. Oh, Hank oh, and oh. Logan insist on riding shotgun to make sure that they don't. He doesn't take her to Taco Bell for the date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or then in a uh, couple in eight where they oh, try to have the picnic, picnic and Gambit hits her in the face with a oh. pie. They classic <laughs> moment. I made this pie with my two hands. Oh, Shetty, I'd find other things you could do with your hands. Oh, oh. sleazy Gambit. Oh, so sleazy. <laughs> Same issue. We meet his wife. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, Remy. Oh yeah, Teeves Guild. Um, <laughs> but uh, props to to Kelly Thompson for kind of putting these these two kids. Through therapy last year, uh, even if it was so an evil therapist could siphon their abilities into golems, or <laughs> something like that. I didn't reread Rogue and Gamut before this, but uh, you know, she kept it going in Mister and Mrs X, which has been a lot of fun and standalone fun, which is nice to see in an X book where you know it is self-contained, uh, you know, to the point where I don't even think they're involved in Age of X Men, and it's fine. Um, some great retro callback fun. I mean, everything oh, yeah. from, from the Technet to some of the more obscure members of like the Shi'ar, mm -hmm. Imperial Guard, and Starjammers. Yeah, yeah. You Cerise. The yeah. love for for classic Excalibur and the modern X line yes, is yes. like crazy. Oh yeah. Like Kylan is back now. Well, he's one of the X Men now, along with Megan. Yeah, he's part of the assembled <laughs> group in, in Uncanny. Yeah. It's 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 crazy, but uh, you know. While the whole bait and switch wedding thing was not everyone's favorite comic trend in in 2018, I, I think it was actually a good call to have them commandeer the Hoppa from uh, <laughs> Kitty and Colossus. You know, it made narrative sense for those two characters based yeah. on on where they're at, and you know, they're say what you know, say what you want about comic weddings. I don't think that they're boring now. That they're sane. If anything. You know, God, it's refreshing to see a char characters who've been around for, for 30, 30 plus years actually show growth and, and health for however long it lasts. Yeah. And have a you know, healthy, honest, loving relationship. And I'm just counting the days until somebody gets Belasco to erase their marriage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope not. Oh, no, don't one more day, these guys. But uh, no, it is, it is a great example of, of the current era of the X-Books where the creators came from the fandom and they have the same love for these characters that we do. And it's not that they don't ever want to imperil them as a result of that, but they're just finding new ways to explore them. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my number one. Okay. So for my number one, 
I, we as a, are of an age where we are children of the late 80s, early to mid 90s and moving forward. How do you do, fellow kids? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, there are certain versions of certain characters that are my version of that character. Specifically, during the early 90s, for those of you who are kids, the DC Universe replaced a lot of their classic versions of characters with newer versions and not in a in some cases uh Azrael uh, a cheap <laughs> event way which i mean and i will rephrase that Azrael was not a cheap event it was making a point but in a lot of cases it was trying to get a new version of a character who would last and the three main examples of that have all been replaced by their silver age versions now as the primary versions of those characters but for me the Flash will always be Wally West. And one of my favorite comic book couples is Wally West and his wife, Linda Park. Wally started out as the Flash in the mid-80s as the Alex P. Keaton of superheroes. He was a Republican. He was from the Midwest, so was conservative. And that was something that kind of came out of the Marv Wolfman Teen Titans and was played with as him as this sort of yuppie superhero. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he dated models and was kind of this casual, happy-go-lucky kind of guy. And then in the early 90s, Mark Wade took over writing The Flash. And Linda Park, who had not necessarily been a love interest, but was a supporting character under uh, William Esner Loeb's run, he, she, started, she and Wally started to date. And they fell in love. And yes, Linda is a reporter. And so the typical DC hero dating reporter, I mean, it comes from the very beginning. But Linda knew Wally's secret identity from day one. So there was never any of that weird, you know, well, how does this reporter not realize that she's dating a superhero? Yeah, she knew going in because Wally's identity was public at the time. And Linda became Wally's lightning rod, literally. Uh, if there's one story to sort of discuss when it comes to them, it's not necessarily their wedding. Because their wedding was a kind of classic disaster wedding interrupted by Abracadabra, who removed Linda from the timeline, and it was a whole thing. But the Wally and Linda story is actually the first Flash story I ever read. Well, second, I mean, Wade did that thing that the Claremont uh, X-Men, Peter David Hulk, where, yeah, there were sort of discrete stories, but it was one sort of continuing epic. But Flash 96 to 100 is a story called Terminal Velocity. It's the story that really introduces the concept of the Speed Force. And after Wally had been lost in time during the Zero Hour crossover, and after uh, Flash Zero, where you see Wally bouncing through time, is probably one of the, if not the best of DC's Zero issues to spin out of that, and one of my personal favorite single issues of all time. Wally arrives back in the present, and he reveals to Linda that he's dying. Every time he runs, 
he's feeling the call of the speed force and that he knows that if he runs fast enough he's going to get sucked into the speed force and you meet max mercury max mercury shows up who's the zen guru of speed and he explains what the speed force is and that speedsters when they die they run fast and they just enter this and there's no way out but the cult of cobra which if you don't know is dc's sort of answer to hydra kinda it's got more of a weird religious thing than a nazi thing it's uh, a cult of kali you know the destruction the, the coming of the kali yuga is invading central city or keystone because keystone because wally is was the hero of keystone barry was the girl. and linda had gotten on their radar by investigating them and so wally knows he has to protect her and eventually at one point he runs like the cobras are shooting at linda and he runs and he saves her but he disappears into the speed force and flash 99 ends with wally west quote unquote dead and the neck he'd given linda the costume ring and finally in, in issue 100 all the other flash characters so jay garrick and bart allen impulse who just appeared made his first appearance less than a year before and jesse quick who was also a fairly new character and everyone are trying to stop cobra and they're not it, it's not working and again linda is now under threat from cobra and then suddenly there's lightning and all the speedsters they, they feel the lightning and then the ring glows and then wally's back and wally cleans the clock of cobra and he's now the fastest flash and his love for linda is the thing that pulled him out and that becomes a recurring theme throughout wade's run that wally is able to run fast enough to go into the speed force and as long as linda's there for him he can always find his way back to her jeff johns plays with it too it was played with a little at the beginning of rebirth and the mm -hmm. rebirth one shot except there he doesn't have that lightning rod because linda's forgotten because of dr manhattan screwing with the timeline and that that broke my heart and seeing the times when they've tried to get them sort of back together or not since then it's it's heartbreaking and especially because while i mean they they got the happy ending that so many they got married they had kids i mean their kids sort of i mean they got older i mean accelerated speed but they still they accelerated aging but they were still together and now with heroes in crisis there are little we've gotten little hints that wally might get his family back and i'm hoping I can't, I mean, I haven't been reading Flash, so it's hard for me to tell without that extra context. I have been reading Heroes in Crisis. It feels very much like a, again, from someone who doesn't have the context, like a Wanda and those kids type of situation. I'm a little worried it's going to go that way. I'm worried that we're going to get a happy ending and then it's going to be pulled out from under us. As much as I want Wally alive, I would actually almost be happy with, you know, Wally and Linda and the kids go into the Speed Force together and are just together in permanent speed nirvana. I just... Their relationship was a cornerstone of the DC Universe in a period when I loved the DC Universe. And to this day, that, that the, there are two phrases that come out of that that era the i am wally west and i'm the flash the fastest man alive that wade began every issue with and wally telling linda that she is his lightning rod and he'll always come home to her 
are the, the core concepts of that run. And it's one of the best... It's, I will say, it's the best run of The Flash of all time. And it's a run that I deeply love, and so I love the couple that comes with it. All right, well... Let's let's sneak around back to Rob. Okay, well, if I went outside the box in the last one, um, I'm about to uh, speed past it uh, about 60 <laughs> miles an hour. And I want to put out a little actual uh, disclaimer before I do this one that I don't necessarily um, endorse this relationship. I mean, there is a level of toxicity, and I'm only really throwing it out because from a psychological level, it's fascinating as hell. And it's Wilson Fisk and Vanessa Fisk. Hmm. From everything that we, we know about Wilson Fisk, you know, this is somebody who very clearly has, you know, uh, a stunted emotional growth. I mean, this is somebody, I mean, he's very much a raging child. He's something to absolutely be feared. He believes that, you know, he, he's this cunning, shrewd, intimidating force when it's people that fear that childish rage that, that comes on. That's definitely the D'Onofrio aesthetic. Yes, that, that, that's something that oh, was yeah. so brilliantly picked yeah. up. And it was something that, you know, um, Stan Lee, back in the old Stan Lee and Romita era, um, they really explicitly picked up on. The very first mention, I did my homework here, it was Amazing Spider-Man 69. Nice. Where <laughs> one of his little underlings uh, specifically say, Kingpin ain't scared of nobody except his missus. And he totally loses his shit, and he nearly rips this man to shreds with his bare hands you do not mention my wife. You don't go there. And then in the following issue, we kind of see her kind of off, you know, she's in a car that she's, you know, saving the kingpin at the last minute, you know, get in my dear. Mm -hmm. We don't really actually get to see her for a while. And uh, actually to bring back up uh, Marv Wolfman and his uh, brief and I think pretty underrated run on uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Later on, the classic issue where she, you know, we do see Vanessa and she gives him that ultimatum. It reveals that his, like, his, his, you know, presence as a crime figure and everything doesn't sit right with her. And for us to stay together, I'm giving you a 24-hour ultimatum to get out of crime. And of course, he bends to it. But as his last act, he wants to kill Spider-Man. And this whole issue is basically him fighting mano a mano in, in these last hours with Spider-Man. And, you know, it's all throughout, you know, his complex. And there's this, you know, giant grandfather clock that is just about to chime midnight. And right when it chimes, in the, he's about to, you know, deliver the killing blow. And Vanessa just comes out of nowhere and walks in and says, no, that, that, that's it. You're done. And, you know, Fisk, who, I mean, nobody can stand up to him. I mean, you know, he's such... You know, that, that, that primal, you know, you know, figure of rage and, and, and infantile rage. His exact quote, where other men tremble at my power, I tremble with my love for you. And he lets Spider-Man go. And he quits crime. And this is actually where they go away for a while. Which is picked up brilliantly in Frank Miller's run. And that's the cool thing, that there's such a continuity of character and this whole development with him and his wife, you know, that started out with Stan Lee, that Marv Wolfman brilliantly picked up, and then Frank Miller goes even further with it, with mm -hmm. the assassination attempt, where she's believed to be dead. And it turns out, you know, she's under rubble, she is alive, slightly catatonic, amnesiatic, and she ends up in the New York underground, 
you know, and she ends up with this community very similar to the Morlocks, this, this, this almost, you know, subterranean mutant community, and Daredevil saves her. And totally, it, it disarms the Kingpin again, the fact that he realizes that she's alive. And this leads into what I think is Frank Miller's real masterpiece with his Daredevil run, and something you're not going to hear a lot of people talk about, was the Love and War graphic novel. Which tells, you know, it's it's two concurrent stories, but, the, you know, the basis of it is that Vanessa is catatonic and Fisk is absolutely desperate to bring her back. And you just, uh, much of it is just these, these anguished internal monologues about he just wants to hear her speak again. He will do anything for this. And he ends up kidnapping a doctor in order, you know, to do the impossible, to bring her back. And this doctor works closely, basically under the threat, you know, he, uh, the doctor's wife is kidnapped by Fisk. And, you know, I, you know, I have your wife, now you go fix mine. And treats him like, you know, just another one of his underlings. Um, the doctor actually gets some kind of breakthrough with Vanessa, where she's able to communicate through these child's blocks with the letters. Now, that's not it, because he knows exactly <laughs> where this is leading. And... Fisk is watching it, and he's growing more um, optimistic that maybe his Vanessa will come back to him. And as the book is, you know, nearly ending, she's streaming together letters into something that she's trying to communicate. And it's finally revealed in a panel, XKAYP, Escape. And it destroys him in, in a way that we've never actually seen it. He's defeated by Daredevil. He's defeated by Spider-Man numerous times. But this is a true emotional defeat. I mean, this is absolute heartbreak. And I think it's kind of interesting that uh, Miller never really alludes to the fact... I mean, this is somebody who was completely amnesiatic and catatonic. I mean, is this really Vanessa who's calling for escape? Is this some new persona or... You know, it, it, that, that's kind of the real tragedy of it that we really don't know. And that's how the story ends. And I think that's how it was supposed to end. Now, I know Christopher Priest brought her back later on in the 90s. To be honest, I'm kind of ignorant beyond that, what was done. But it gets it gets weird during Bendis and Brubaker's run. Yeah. It gets... It, it, for anyone who hasn't read it, I'm not going to spoil it because it does deal with some pretty central stuff. And I actually, I believe it's mostly, if not all, in Brubaker's run, mm -hmm. because the 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 climax of her sort of final confrontation with everything she had been through is during Brubaker's run. I'm never quite sure how I feel about it personally. Mm -hmm. So, are they dealing with the trauma of this of of her time with Wilson or this assassination attempt? And this is the... dealing with her sort of coming around because if if you in Bendis's run, at the beginning of Bendis's run or towards the beginning, the kingpin is nearly mur is nearly murdered, mm -hmm. and without giving too much away later. Vanessa, in a similar way to you kind of get the vibe from her in the first season of Daredevil, where she's more of an equal partner, mm -hmm. she seeks to get revenge on those who had her husband murdered. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this whole thing. And she does some stuff that I... 
was not necessarily sure how I felt about it in relation to her character as it had been previously mm-hmm. revealed. And I mean, granted, there's enough trauma and such in her past that it could be yeah. read that this is how she's finally kind of broken and responded to that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's certainly interesting stuff. But I'm it, it's been a long time since I read it, and, and I, I love Ed Brubaker. I, a lot of I mean, his Ron Daredevil is. Solid. It's yeah. real good, and I think that, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm. It's one of these things I have to go back and I would have to think about a little more. I'm almost disappointed that there's something further to it. I mean, there's such a finality to that. Just you know, a, a, of her finding a new life, whether or not she comes out of that catatonic state. I mean, like I said, I don't know. She obviously does, you know, yeah. from that. But you know, where they leave it with that, I, I just thought it was a beautiful ending, and I just thought, my God, I mean, this is a book that really makes you almost feel for him i mean this is one of the most loathsome characters in the marvel universe but yet there is that semblance of relatable humanity in him and 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 pathos and the fact that maybe he necessarily can't help the way he is i mean the circumstances of his life kind of built him into being that monster but yet there is a core to him. I mean, somebody who's you know a lot better read than me can maybe say there's something Oedipal about it or that he sees her as a mother figure that he seeks some kind of validity from and that's why he's so subservient to her. I don't know. I mean, that, that could be it. That could be way off the mark, but it still, it makes you think and that's why I included it on here with that disclaimer. I mean, I, I didn't necessarily approach this as the best like uh, couples and comics, I approached it as what the most interesting to me were. Basically, yeah. Yeah. you know, how comics, you know, can deal with romance and love and things like that in a very unique way. And so, yeah. I honestly think love and war is something that we might see come up a little more because the Kingpin design in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is Sinkevich's design. That is, yeah. That's that, a, the hulking, almost hunchback head yeah. forced forward. Where the head comes out of the void of his body. Yes, that it's is Sinkevich's design. Oh no, even more than that, the whole impetus, I forgot about that, the whole impetus of the story about tapping into another alternate universe comes, I don't want to spoil for anybody out there, but Vanessa is kind of, doesn't really appear much in the movie, but is central to the, yeah. the, the yeah. story of it. Yeah, And as a one of my one of those weird little things that I the first time I encountered Vanessa Fisk was in one of the '90s Marvel DC crossovers. She is central to Spider-Man, Batman. Batman, Spider-Man is the DC one, the one with mm-hmm. Carnage and the Joker. Mm-hmm. The Marvel one, Spider-Man, Batman, is a Kingpin, Rachel Ghoul story. And it has to, the part of the core of it is, has to do with Vanessa and the Lazarus pit. Yeah. Uh, so that was the first time I'd ever, I ever saw mm. that character. It's a really interesting that's choice. Brilliant. That's a brilliant turn right there. I yeah. Mean, I think it was Dixon and Nolan. I mean, I know yeah. it was Graham Nolan on art. I'm pretty sure it was Chuck Dixon. Because mm. it was weird. Because the, or maybe I've got notes. I mean, I have numbers. This is Batman, Spider-Man. Because this is the DC one. Okay. Spider-Man, Batman was... Dimitrius and Bagley with Joker and Carnage. That makes more sense. Well, that, if you got Chuck yeah. Dixon and Graham Nolan, that's going to be the the DC published one. Okay. Um, speaking of DC, 
Uh, for my uh, second one here, I am going to go with uh, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, before Clark and Lois, before Peter and Mary Jane, but a few years after Reed and Sue uh, Richards, there there was uh, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda, or, or, you know, those characters got, got married. Obviously, the other ones existed beforehand. But, um, you know, I've been on a pretty big fourth world kick since uh, Tom King and Mitch Garrett's uh, Mr. Miracle series started. Uh, God, almost two years ago now. And I can see why people love this couple, you know, uh, especially because it's just it's Jack Kirby playing with gender power dynamics. You know, it's it's short, skinny, scot free. And, and the only woman he couldn't escape, even if he wanted to, you know, this, this beautiful woman with this bodybuilders uh, body, you know, Jack Kirby's tribute to his wife, Rosalind, whom, you know, what a what a you know just beautiful way to pay tribute, saying you know this is the the big strong woman in my life, and she's gonna you know she will kick your ass, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, I just I you know their their power dynamic is 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 amazing, and I I love the way that they dealt with each other in the recent Mister Miracle series, especially I think it's issue ten where Scott is debating giving up baby Jacob to dark side to can you know cancel the latest apocalypse new genesis war and you know barda's like you know she's just she's had enough you know she stood by his side when he committed suicide you know she had this baby or tried to commit suicide you know when you know she had this baby for him and now she's like demanding he be strong it's just another one of those moments of like stand you know and meanwhile he's getting advice from the guy at party city about whether he should do this, this this terrible thing, and uh, oh God, that was such a good series. Um, yeah. You know, so they're not they're probably not the DC couple that most people go to off the top, just because you know you you live in the same universe as Clark and Lois. <laughs> Maybe now though, after the King series, you know, mm. more people would be yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and hopefully, and and remember, Superman and Lois Lane didn't get married until uh, the nineties, oh, yeah. and it was just to to match up with Dean Cain and Terry Hatcher. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hashtag never forget. Um, <laughs> uh, I wanted, yeah. Uh, I I just finished reading the second of the fourth world omnibuses when DC. I mean, they've now released the giant one volume, but I have it in the four individual volumes mm -hmm. and at the back of each of those Mark Evanier who was Kirby's assistant uh, writes a little afterwards about the making of those comics and he was talking about uh, when Mike Royer became Kirby's inker because mm -hmm. it started out as Vince Coletta right. and eventually he left and Royer came on. Royer was someone Kirby wanted to work with because Royer was in lived on the west coast where Kirby did so it wasn't you know he would send the pages off to D.C. Coletta, who was in New York, would ink them, and then they'd go to print. And Kirby, who was the nominal editor of the titles, never got to see the pages. Uh, and according to Ivanier, he never had problems with Royer, except once on the first issue of Mr. Miracle that he inked. Because he had gone in, and Royer was a good girl artist back in the day. He was known for pretty ladies. And he had made Barda model pretty. And Barda is 
meant to be not unattractive, but meant to be strong as the first thing. And her features are were very particular in Kirby's mind. She's got the physique of like a like a Russ Meyer movie kind of like girls with T- guns. Taurus Satana. Yeah. Like if if they were made in the late sixties, would have been perfect. Actually, follow it up. You would ask me a while back who would I cast. In a Mr. Miracle movie, and I sat there and I thought about it. Adam Driver. Oh, what the hell's her name? Rosario Dawson. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Just she does have sort of that physique, and yeah. But yeah, it was the only time they had. And Kirby went in and he redrew Barda's face and touched it up and sent Royer a note saying, "That's not the way Bard is supposed to look." And Royer never changed it again. But it's Kirby had a, I think possibly more so than anyone else had a very particular way he wanted Barda to be drawn and thought of, mm-hmm. because of the connection to Roz, I'd wager. And the great even Earl tells some great stories about Kirby and Roz and just how she was the one who kept him honest and kept him, you know, like you gotta come to bed, Jack, just one more page, honey, <laughs> and then she'd wake up the next morning and. He had he had not lied to her, but he had he'd get in the zone and she'd wake up and she'd make him his coffee and they, they had this beautiful relationship that was very much reflected in Scott and Barda. You know, I just want to scrap my whole thing. I think Jack and Rosalind Kirby are the best couple of comics. <laughs> I could go with that. <laughs> Apologies to Walton Louis Simonson. Oh, you know, and I was going to actually throw that in there. It's like the, the best couple hands down of comics. And meeting them in person. Oh, just, you could just tell they love each other. Yeah, I just wanted them to adopt me. Yeah, <laughs> they were just a delight. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we're back to you, Matt. Yes, we are back to me. Um, so Rob mentioned... It earlier when he was talking about mystique and destiny. Um, it's pretty common knowledge that queer characters in comics are a relatively new thing because of comics codes, because of society as a whole, let's be honest. But in the early 90s, there were really only two black and white comics that sort of broke out of the indie world and would show up in the pages of Wizard Magazine. (laughs) (laughs) One of them is Bone, which is not in this discussion, although let's phone phone Bone and Rose are, uh, not Rose, and Thorn are still delightful. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the other one is Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise. Oh, yes, yes. And the... This is one of the few romance comics published in about a 30-year period. And still, you don't get a lot of real romance comics today. (laughs) Trouble. How dare you both? (laughs) But Strangers in Paradise, while it has all these other things going on, at its heart is the love story between uh, Katina Chivansky, Kachu, and her best friend, Francine Peters. Kachu and Francine go through 107 issues, over three volumes. They are friends, they aren't friends. They're in love, they're not in love. It, there are uh, other extenuating circumstances as Kachu's past, as 
a crime criminal coal girl part of a network of mob coal girls comes back uh, as Francine gets married as the a triangle the other part of the triangle at the core of the story David Kin becomes involved in the whole thing but the core of that series is Kachu has loved Francine since they were teenagers and Francine having to come to terms with herself enough to embrace a true and unfailing love. And again, they have a happy ending. Strangers in Paradise ends with the two of them and children from other relationships that they've had that are now, they are a blended family with the two of them loving each other and their two daughters. It's beautiful. And it was a landmark thing. Because there there weren't... I mean, Strangers was not a mainstream comic. It wasn't... I mean, it came out briefly from Image for about maybe a year before it went back to being independently published by Terry Moore's uh, Abstract Studios. But it was the closest thing you had to a ongoing queer relationship in comics outside of Vertigo series. I mean, there were... I mean, Neil Gaiman explored some of those themes in Sandman, and there were some other Vertigo series that... Uh, I think Grant Morrison did some stuff in his Doom Patrol as well. It's been a long time since I read that. But Strangers is also... It's a story about relationships. It's about loving each other and loving yourself. And it's a great series. I'm curious to see this Wednesday, the final issue of the 25th anniversary 10-issue miniseries comes out. And what's interesting is Francine and Kachu have not shared a page in those first nine issues. Hmm. It's all been Kachu on a quest to, again, prevent some of her past from coming back and biting her family because of what had happened. Mm -hmm. And it's been this weird sort of fun if you like Terry Moore's work because it has, it ties all of the creator own work he's done, Strangers, Rocket Girl, Rachel Rising, and Echo into one cohesive universe. And there have always been hints of that. But it really kind of is like, okay, these are all in one world. And Kachu is running into characters from all these series. And the last issue ends on a pretty down note. And I'm hoping that the last issue we get Francine and Kachu and their kids together and we get a, a, a cherry on top. Mm-hmm. But one way or the other, there's always that final issue of Strangers where it's that, you know, closing, you know, they, they literally, you know, you see them all in a room together and they close the door and it goes, fades to black, but they had that, that happy moment. And it's a great series. And it's, I, I won't say it's it's by no means forgotten, but it doesn't get the the same sort of oomph that it once did when it was one of the few sort of indie comics that was a thing during yeah. the early nineties. You know, to the point where in Chasing Amy, basically, it's it's not not referenced but uh, homage. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, um, I think we're back to you, Rob. Okay. Um, 
I'm actually going to go with the big one. And uh, How far from the box are we now? No, we're actually way in. <laughs> we're we're going to go squarely in the box. Um, this is a stone classic. This is the first thing that I thought of when we were going to do this today. I'm not even going to bury the lead. It's Abigail Arcane and Swamp Thing. <sighs> and I get to talk about what is probably my favorite single issue of a comic ever. It's Rites of Spring, Swamp Thing 34. I mean, the classic Alan Moore with Steve Pizzette and John Totalbin. I mean, talk about, you know, themes of, you know, it's the renewal of life and love. I mean, the very idea of spring itself, of, of, of love blossoming and, and this renewal. And um, we're coming off of, I mean, if you're familiar with the story, Abigail's marriage to Matt Cable has basically fallen apart at this point. He's comatose. They become estranged anyway. And over the previous year, it had built, you know, this, this burgeoning friendship between her and Alec that with a hint of a little bit something more. And just like something, you know, you have that, that, that one spring day where everything just kind of blossoms immediately. She just basically comes out with it and, and declares, like, on the second or third page that she loves him. And it's reciprocated by Alec and there's kind of this, this this immediate you know discussion of so where do we go from now i mean right down to something as simple as kissing and he kind of cautions against it but she does it anyway and there's this wonderful little moment you know little cute moment where she says oh it tastes like lime <laughs> just without the bite but then he counters uh love requires something more than the taste of lime and of course he's talking about sex and they have a there's a page where they have a very kind of candid discussion on okay we're in love you're a plant, I'm a person. I mean, how do we actually consummate this thing? And Swamp Thing actually has an idea, and he actually produces a tuber from his body, like a piece of fruit, and invites her to eat it. Which, you know, at first she's a little apprehensive, like, is this going to make me sick? I don't know, I'm going to actually eat a part of you, which you could probably go into all some kind of <laughs> subtext about that, but she does. And she comments on, you know, how good it is. Oh, it tastes like cardamom. And then she begins to hallucinate. What he's actually done is he's given her a physical invitation to actually share in being within the green and to share what his consciousness is like. And it's, it's kind of an insight to how Swamp Thing actually views the world and life. And it just begins, I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. And she's almost overwhelmed by even something as simple as insects. She's looking down at insects and compares them to jewels. It's just that totality of just everything that, you know, is alive. And really, I mean, words are going to fail me because really to describe how the core of this story is, is like describing the third act of 2001 to somebody. I mean, it is very much a psychedelic visual tone poem. It's her basically basking in that oneness of that union of soul it's it unlike anything it's probably like the greatest illustrated like psychedelic <laughs> it's <laughs> in, like in the history of, of, of paper um unbelievably i mean cosmic and beautiful and and it's also very lighthearted at the same time it doesn't take itself that seriously and you know, when the whole thing's over and she snaps out of it, I mean, she embraces him. I guess we're going steady now. <laughs> <laughs> um, just on every, it, just the creative level, just from the writing and just the execution of this thing. I mean, you know, how do you actually communicate to your artists and vice versa? Like how you want, you know, 
this 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 tale portrayed. I mean, it's unlike anything I've ever read. I, I don't think it will be anything like that. I mean, it is the greatest comic that I've ever read. It, it is a masterpiece. I, it's just it's pure love. I mean, it's an issue that basically deals with sex, and it you know, but it it's it's more of a joining of of the soul and just wonderful stuff. Yeah. So suck Stop on that. that, The Shape of Water. <laughs> <laughs> um, I cannot top that from my third, uh, but uh, I, I will do my best to try. Uh, so for my third, I went away from the big two, um, but probably still a pretty obvious choice. Uh, Marco and Alana from Saga. Oh, yes. Uh, I do need to confess, uh, you know, I still have to read the last pre-hiatus Saga trade. I sure hope nothing bad happens. <clears throat> but uh, no, seriously though, uh, I, <laughs> uh, I I just love how much these two act like a real couple uh, in the midst of, of interplanetary strife. Uh, you know, like what is what is more real than worrying aloud during childbirth whether you're gonna shit? <laughs> That's issue one. <laughs> you know, so so much of what they go through is normal couple stuff. There's domestic violence there's drug issues there's the temptation to stray they separate they get back together marco grows a beard for a minute they have makeup sex they have trouble with the in-laws uh you know it it, it's just that in between all these moments there are big ugly space monsters with big ugly space genitals (laughs) (laughs) one of whom (laughs) self-relates you know and 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 douchebag princes with tvs for heads (laughs) Uh, so many bounty hunters so, so many, many bounty hunters. <laughs> and Gus. <laughs> oh, and Frendo. And Frendo, that's right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's Brian K. Vaughn, so, of course, it's 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 farting fantastic, and, and Fiona Staples makes everything beautiful, mm. right down to the wrinkly alien space groves. <laughs> <laughs> that book gets away with some stuff. <laughs> But that's but but that's my third. <laughs> so, while you're going with a couple that's really grounded in reality, I'm going with a couple that is this sort of idealized couple. For me, my favorite couple in comics, bar none, are Ralph and Sue Dibney, oh. the elongated man and his wife. He, he's not a superhero. I was going to try to come up with some sort of clever alter ego, and it's not there. The um, shortened woman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those of you who just know Ralph from the Flash TV series... Wait, hold on. Was that a really cruel identity crisis joke I just made? Because that was not my intention. Oh, God. I hadn't even thought about that. Okay, and, let's just go. Let's yeah, move past yeah, this. Moving, moving on. That didn't quickly. happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ralph, for those of you who only know him from the Flash, yes, Ralph Dibney can stretch. Yes, he is sort of like Plastic Man, but also a detective. But the thing that makes Ralph sort of much different from Plastic Man and is that Ralph is married to society lady Sue Dibney. Uh, this is very much a trope that doesn't exist anymore, but they are inspired by Nick and Nora Charles of The Thin Man the classic book by Dashiell Hammett that became a series of movies in the 40s, I believe it was. It might have been the 
30s into the 40s. Uh, it's another a trope that is also used in my favorite podcast of all time, The Thrilling Adventure Hour, with Frank and Sadie Doyle, who are the same trope, only they're even drunker than Nick and Nora <laughs> Charles, which is saying something if you ever watch those Thin Man movies, and they see ghosts. Uh, but Ralph and Sue complete each other. They love each other till the end of the world and back. They don't, they didn't, they never got as much play. I mean, there's like a, a mini series here, backups there, uh, part of Justice League Europe. But every time you see the Dibneys, they just love the hell out of each other. And they're funny. <laughs> they have this quick back and forth rapport, which is the trademark of that thin man back relationship. That it's it's got that Aaron Sorkin, Joss Whedon, a little too clever to people to actually talk this way. But they just are perfect together. I really first encountered them in James Robinson's Starman, where Ralph and Sue became supporting characters towards the back 20 or so of that series right before the final big mega arc started but then i went back and i found you know the backups in detective comics and justice league europe and a showcase presents which was all the old elongated man stories where you learn that every year sue plans a tailor-made mystery for ralph's birthday and it became a running thing and various authors did it over the years and I think it's sort of sad that I heard last year on one podcast or another a top five comic book couples. And of the three people in that podcast, only one of them mentioned the Dibneys. And up at number five or four and said that they were a couple that really didn't become a thing until after Sue's death. And that, that you know, it didn't enter the consciousness. It wasn't an important relationship until after Sue's death. And Sue's death is problematic in so many ways. Uh, but I will say that one of my favorite little things, and it's sadly something that, that got played with only a couple of times before the New 52 came around and wiped the slate, was that during 52, the miniseries mm -hmm. that came out of Infinite Crisis, Ralph is one of the central figures there, dealing with the grief of losing his wife and sort of trying to find a way to bring her back or all sorts of crazy things with him and demons and magic. And in the end, Ralph sacrifices himself to imprison the demon Neuron. And at the very end of the series some sort of crazy magical thing happens and it pulls back and you see Ralph and Sue are ghosts. And he's like, I smell a mystery. And they're together as supernatural detectives. As they're dead man, the, the dead man detectives. And they only use that, as far as I know, twice. Once in a, one of the DC Halloween specials and Chuck Dixon hinted that they were working with Batman during the Batman and the Outsiders run he did shortly before Batman R.I.P. <laughs> but that they were going to be sort of the secret members of the Outsiders helping Bats. And I thought that 
you know, if you can't have Ralph and Sue together as detectives in the real world, in the, the physical world, having them as these ghost detectives, being able to investigate these magical mysteries together, even beyond, till death do us part, doesn't stop a love as great as Ralph and Sue Dibney's. And I love that. And I will give Gail Simone credit for having them show up together in Secret Six. And clearly she had more planned for that series and the plug got pulled early because the last couple issues are real rushed. But she went out of her way to make sure that Ralph and Sue got back together because that is their natural state. Their natural state are as a couple who are funnier and smarter than me and you and anybody else they talk to. I love the Dibneys. <laughs> Do we have like another like five minutes? We just, what do you need, man? I want to roll into something. Actually, we, we actually perfect. still have reader suggestions. So. Oh, oh! Yep. This actually rolled into something that I did want to explicitly bring up, and this is like the perfect segue, and it actually deals with what my uh, honorable mentions were. But one thing I really wanted to stay away from was the tendency for tragic endings, with because that seems like that's very much a thing in itself that nobody can, you know, everybody must suffer. There yeah. cannot be a happy any happy relationships. Um, just really quick, you know, the two that I really wanted to mention, Hulk and Jarella, mm. you know, as, you know, the, the story from uh, Harlan Ellison that, you know, picked up later on where, you know, he goes to this, you know, microscopic universe called Kai and he meets this princess named uh, Jarella and falls deeply in love with her. And then later they're reunited and she's tragically killed, actually. She stays for some time on Earth with Banner and saving a child dies and it goes on actually even worse i mean the, the the tragedy of her dying where the gamma base actually keeps her body in suspended animation basically to do research on it and it turns into a fight for him just to get her body to give her a decent burial i mean that, it's just tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy but i mean that, that that's probably the greatest hulk love story i, I would even put that above betty you know for my money um, it's something actually I got, you know, meeting uh, Herb Trimp, I actually had mm -hmm. him sign the Heart of the Atom book and told him how much that book meant to me. And he said that was his absolute favorite working on. And the other is um, actually Alpha Flight. Um, that first great year from John Byrne, you know, you had this team that really wasn't even together. And its central character, Guardian, the least interesting of all. <laughs> but they establish him as this very happily married guy and we do like his wife Heather mm -hmm. very much and it's almost the reverse that trope of where you have the male character losing his female partner or whatever tragically his his his, his non-powered female partner and it turns out he's the one who's actually killed and she takes up that mantle she finds that strength from the team and there's that wonderful silent dream issue where she's dreaming of the funeral and Logan's there and you know that that that's my two honorable mentions with that but the thing that I wanted to present to you guys is about that I mean talk about Gwen Stacy talk about you know Gene is Dark Phoenix at the time was it intended to be Gene mm -hmm. dying I really don't want to mention Kyle Raynor and uh oh, Alex. refrigerators oh, um, blah, 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 blah. Electra I mean the image of Matt actually on top of her casket I mean even down I mean not not speaking of death but you know with Peter and Mary Jane you know, with the end of that marriage. I mean, is this just something, is there a cynical belief that comic readers just can't handle a happy ending? Like, like you were talking about with, with Strangers in Paradise, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, wow, that's kind of a rarity, because these usually don't end up very well. 
it's I think part of it is the continuing nature of superhero comics that the best happy endings that I can think of for superheroes or from a lot of the mainstream stuff happens in series that have an ending. Jack Knight in Starman gets his happy ending. He goes off to find Sadie to have a family and Jack has not appeared. He appeared in a cameo at Sue Dibney's funeral and that's it. That's the only time Jack has appeared since the end of Starman. Or one of my honorable mentions that I just couldn't find, Jesse Custer and Tulip. Uh, they get mm-hmm. the happy ending because the series ends. They get to literally ride off into the sunset on a horse, but that series ends. I was just actually listening to an episode of a podcast that was talking about this exact thing, more in the context of superhero films mm-hmm. and how underwritten the love interests are and how they're always a part of the story. I think it is a blind spot that comes from the same place that gives us suggested for mature readers as a comic with boobs and a lot of blood. The difference between mature and... Sophisticated. Yes. Or even, they're not even mature stories. A lot of what gets is suggested for mature readers. Mm-hmm. It's a nice way to, to say that, hey, we don't want kids reading these. But a lot of them, I mean, and yes, there are plenty of titles that fall under that, that are mature storytelling. But there's plenty that aren't. Because, and that we, for a long time, I think, it was believed that people reading superhero comics were immature and thus couldn't deal with a mature the maturing of their characters that people grow up people get married people find a way to have adventures as a married couple people ask demons to erase their memories of each other to save their dying aunts yeah <laughs> yeah um, I mean, and that's the thing. It's the world outside your window. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and again, I, I, I had, other than Jesse and Tulip, mm-hmm. uh, three more superhero uh, honorable mentions, uh, two of which are Bat relationships, Batman and Catwoman and Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon and whatever permutation you want to go there. And they're never going to get the happy ending. They're always going to wind up getting split up and getting back together because that's the nature of the relationship. In a lot of ways, that's the nature of a Bat character. Suffering is sort of in the DNA there. Oh, I throw it Batwoman and Maggie Sawyer also. Oh, I, I love that. Batwoman and Renee Montoya, too. Yeah. The, the Bat characters don't get the happy ending. It's part of the thing, which is why I couldn't... As much as I love that the banter you get between Bruce and Selina, mm-hmm. and the same kind of thing you get between Dick and Babs. Yeah. They're not going to get... You're only going to get the wedding in an alternate universe. Or when it's, hey, we're ending this continuity in its entirety. So, hey, Gail Simone, you want to write that wedding of Nightwing and Oracle in a two-issue Convergence miniseries? Because you can do that now because those versions of those characters ain't never showing up again. And it'll really help us while we move to Burbank. Yeah. (laughs) And the other honorable mention is Lois and Clark. I'm... They are so much better together than they are apart. 
And Lois is his equal. And I think anyone who can't, any writer who can't get an interesting story about the world's most powerful man married to the world's greatest reporter isn't trying. And I mean, I, I want to say no offense to the writers who decided that they shouldn't be married, but yeah, a little offense to the writers who wanted to make them not marry. Well, was that was that the writers or was that? Wasn't that Dan DiDio? That was editorial. Yeah. Or that might have come or down... Bob Harris, from, one of those guys? Or it might have come down from Warner itself, because Lois and Clark weren't married, and they were launching a new movie franchise, so let's make them... But you know what? Friggin' Henry Cavill, Superman, and Lois are a couple, and they're engaged. And they take happy bats together. They do. <laughs> <laughs> well, like Cable and Domino. That was, yeah. that was a cool scene, actually. It was. It was one of the better scenes in that movie. But that's... There is something... In that relationship, that can make for such a kick-ass story, and it has. I mean, Rebirth has proven that them as parents, that makes for a great freaking story. They, that John, and the, it's charming as hell, and it's interesting, and that's the, that is what a lot of writers for a lot of them didn't that super, married superheroes weren't interesting, and Reed and Sue Richards got a pass because you had Ben and Johnny. To be, you know, the audience point of view way in. So Reed and Sue could be the, the cute, doddering old couple. But I, I think Lois and Clark are better together than they are apart. And yeah, I mean, Bendis doesn't have them together together. But he's still playing with their relationship. And I, I, I have some faith that Lois and Clark will be together again. Not too far off with new super teen son. <laughs> that's great uh well like i mentioned we also got some reader suggestions uh via twitter kind of put out the uh call um got three of them here so uh from becca at rt on twitter we got uh dinah and ollie black canary oh. and green lantern the uh the black arrow and... huh green arrow what did i say green, green lantern, lantern. <laughs> whoops a doodle black canary and uh green arrow the what have uh... you done for the green people dan <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I'm an orange lantern. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> My mind. <laughs> um, and then uh, from past guest, friend of the show, uh, friend of the website, Charlie Davis, Richter and Shatterstar from X Force. That's another couple yeah. that you know. It was heavily implied by the fandom <laughs> that they were a queer couple, and and once again, Peter David. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know textually brought them together uh charlie's actually going to be writing a macro review of tim seeley and uh, carlos Vila and uh, gerardo sandoval's uh shatterstar series this week for the site so keep an eye out for that and uh steve morris from shelf dust another past guest of the show uh this is a deep pull this is a tragic pull this is an obscure pull it's rusty and skids oh wow yeah that's that's one of the you know I, I you know what I, my 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 note that I wrote right next to it is those two poor goddamn kids could never catch a break. I'm not even just talking about being underwritten, woefully underwritten, <laughs> yeah. outside of Louis Simonson. I mean, you know, once I guess once the Liefeld era started in earnest, went to jail, fought the vulture, got brainwashed by Strife into joining the Mutant Liberation Front, and then because at that point they just had Joiner Syndrome, ended up on the Acolytes. <laughs> Rusty died in space on Avalon when Holocaust woke up aboard Magneto's space station. 
And then um, that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's... I, I, I mean, I know Skids ended up being like an agent of Shield or something. Yeah, I think it was in Brubaker's Uncanny. I remember. Mm-hmm. I think she pops up there doing yeah. that. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, did Rusty come back in Necrotia? Probably. Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Necrotia really can just, except for bringing back Doug, Necrotia pretty much can just yeah. get ignored. <laughs> and Banshee. And Banshee. Yeah. yeah. Well, now he, he's like a zombie drone? He has the apocalypse suit in him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was pretty great, though, in uh, Rosenberg's uh, Astonishing Run. But, uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's the show. Uh, you know, this has been, as always, a ton of fun. Uh, and I wish I knew how to be this loose around all our other guests. But uh, tune in in two months when we do our Easter episode focusing on comics' greatest all-time... You know, I was going to say bunnies. I was going to say resurrections. As a goof. <laughs> Uh, but now I'm talking out loud, and you just said it, actually. Yeah. Maybe we do one of those about resurrections. Uh, so if you believe in us hard enough, like Jesus, the three amigos will return. We're back, going to back on that ass with a resurrection. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> eggs! That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes and the ability to promote your work on our site. And two dollars gets you a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote, and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time. That's a magic number.